Welcome to the Community Church Podcast. This is the third week of our series, Women of Redemption. This message comes from Matthew 1 and Joshua chapter 2. If you'd like to take notes, there's a link for that in the show notes. Thanks for joining us. And without further ado, here's Pastor Mike. Uh, We're doing a different Christmas series this Christmas. You know, a lot of times you might think you come to church and it's like, okay, well, I've heard the Christmas story before. What can we say new? This is actually a part of the Christmas story many of you maybe have not ever heard. It's actually from the very beginning of the Gospel of Matthew, where Matthew tells the story of Jesus' genealogy, his, his line, and he really highlights the several women that are in that line of genealogy, women that you would not necessarily, you may not even know their story, but you wouldn't have thought of celebrating them as part of the line of Jesus. And uh, so we're going to be looking at that this morning, specifically one of the women, uh, a woman named Rahab. And if you have a Bible, I'd invite you to turn. It all began here. Yep. Here we go. That's not what we want to do. That's not what we want to do either. Okay, let's, here we go. This is where we want to go. Okay, um, so, you know, we want to, uh, with, it's Rahab, it, her story primarily is in Joshua 2. We're going to start in Matthew 1 and then go. If you have a Bible, I'd invite you to, to open a Joshua 2 to follow along with her story when we get there. If you don't have one and you'd like to use a Bible, there's one in front of you. It's on page 201 of that Bible. But let me begin with a word of prayer. Father, thank you so much for the privilege that we do have to come together this morning, Father, to be able to celebrate Christmas, to celebrate its meaning. Father, thank you for the kids that are here that are, that are leading and, and, uh, and sharing even in their joy. Father, thank you for the worship team, for each person that's here today. And Father, we pray that you would help us to disengage from the running around, all the doing and all the shopping. And Father, to take a moment, to take a breath, and not only to worship, but now reflect. Father, I thank you for what you're teaching me through my own study of your word. And I pray now that you get me out of the way, that your spirit would speak through me and in spite of me. Father, help each one of us to hear something not from the word of men, but from the word of God, that uh, you would use me to communicate your truth to each of our hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I think for many of us, when we think of the holiday season, not only Christmas, but Thanksgiving, we think of family get-togethers. And, uh, and for many of us, we think of these times that we get together with family members we don't see very often. And, and for some, that's like all joy. That's wonderful. We've got all these wonderful branches of, you know, great family members, and we just love to catch up with them and see, you know, kind of see where they're at. And for some of us, maybe it's a little more mixed blessing. You know, you have some people that you love to see, and some people it's like, oh, man, you know, what am I going to say, and how do I deal with them? And we're not quite as excited. You know, we, if we say we've got a family tree, we've got some good branches, and we've got some bad apples. And um, in fact, I ran across something that's kind of a humorous spoof of that idea. Uh, it's something where it's, it's a advertising an all-inclusive package to help you deal with those difficult family members and see if any of these products are things that you wish you could have. Are you sick and tired of your family? The holiday get-together seem unbearable. Then you need the Family Survival Kit. Noon from the makers of Date Be Gone and Renekid, it's the Family Survival Kit, filled with tons of family-neutralizing goodness. Like the criticism-canceling headphones. Harsh words go in, but compliments come out. Why can't you be more like your sister? She's always been here with- I am so proud. You are perfect just the way you are. I love you. Creeped out by over-affectionate dance? Not anymore with Family Off, specially formulated to repel unwanted affection. (gasps) Now, how much would you pay? Never be asked for money again with the Mooch Whistle. It sounds out a high-pitched sound that only Mooches can hear. They'll be too confused to ask for anything. 
Undisciplined children are no problem at all with sleepy time brat darts. Just lift, aim, and blow for a whole 24 hours of brat-free living. But wait, there's more! Unsure of what to say to emotionally unavailable family members? Then let an expert say it for you with Dr. Phil in a can. Are you avoiding reality? Do you resist your children? Do you realize that this is a big problem? You can't change what you don't acknowledge? Thanks, Dr. Phil. If all else fails, use our patented nuclear family love grenade. Just pull the pin, toss it in, and let nitrous oxide put the fun back in his function. So call this number and get your family survival kit today. Just three easy payments of $19.95. Order today and get the tongue cozy absolutely free. I can't taste a thing. So order yours today. Supplies limited price up to change. Love grenade, not legal in Utah, Hawaii, California. Not responsible for any damage or liability. Anybody relate to some of that? Work with Germans, accountants, or people who are sticklers for Stelly. I, I just I just wonder if I'm going to be getting emails this week. It's like, well, what was the number to order that again? You know, it's like, I, I need that for my holidays. And, now, now, we laugh at that, and, and uh, we think of some of the dis unique dysfunctions that might be in our families. And part of us, then, when we come to the Christmas story, we think, but that's our family. You have Jesus. Boy, he must have had the ideal family. God chose everyone in his family. And, and of course, God would choose all the good people and the moral people and the well-respected and people that had it all together. That would be his family tree, right? Only when we look at Matthew, we see that Matthew begins his story of Jesus by telling us his genealogy. And, and it, when he lists the people in the genealogy, we find that it's not all the good, moral, healthy, well-respected people that you might expect. In fact, what you have is you have most genealogies at that time would have been a male-dominated genealogy. It's, it's listing only fathers to sons. And here in Matthew, we have him listing several women four women specifically in the first half of that. And, and all of those women, they shouldn't have been mentioned because it, they didn't belong in that. And it was his way in a sense of highlighting, saying, notice this story. This is something that I want you to see. And when you look at their stories, what you find is that there are people that, that you wouldn't want to admit as part of your family tree. They were, they were people that were associated with some of the worst scandals in Israel's history. Last week, uh, for those that were with us, we looked at the story of Judah and Tamar, and, and that's about as dysfunctional of a family story as you could ever imagine, you know, dealing with, you know, selling a brother into slavery and sexual entrapment and incest. And this week, we're going to look at, at Rahab, and uh, we're going to see with Rahab, it's every time she's mentioned in the New Testament, it's Rahab the prostitute. And again, it's like, that's not somebody that you celebrate necessarily in your family tree. Let me tell you about my great-grandmother. And no, this, you know, next week we're going to look at Ruth and then Bathsheba. And Bathsheba was part of the worst scandal of Israel's history. And when we look at this, we have to ask, why did Matthew put these in Jesus' genealogy? They didn't, he didn't need to be there. You wouldn't expect women to be there. And he not only puts them there, but he highlights them. Putting them there, he, he draws attention. And, and so you've got to say, why would he do that? And I think there's a reason. Because Matthew is in, by, led by the Holy Spirit, is writing something in the Bible, and he's saying, before I tell you about Jesus, before I tell you about his ministry, what he did, let me give you a kind of a hint from, from just his family tree. When you look at his genealogy, his genealogy itself is teaching us something. It's illustrating something about the meaning and the purpose of, of Jesus' life, of Jesus' ministry, of what he came to do. And here's why. You see, in ancient times, a genealogy would have been like a resume. You see, in our time, when we think about a resume, we want to impress someone. We, we say, well, here, let me tell you what I have done. Here's my accomplishments. 
But in ancient times, you would actually start not with your accomplishments, but you would start with the accomplishments of your forebears. Here's what my ancestors have done. And now here you have Matthew, who's writing to a primarily, initially a, a primary Jewish audience, very religious. And, they, and that religious focus, they would have been looked at, you know, looking at the religion. Okay, how do you approach God? Well, it's what you do and how have you performed? And so their focus was, do you have the right genealogy? Do you have the right forefathers? Do you have the right bloodline? Have you kept all the rules? Have you done the things that you need to do to make God happy? And Matthew's saying, no, that's not the message of Jesus. And as he begins Jesus' life, he knew that, that the message of Jesus would fly in the face of that religious perspective. And so he starts introducing Jesus by using this genealogy saying, okay, I'm going to illustrate something about who Jesus was. He didn't come to help us build a better resume. He didn't come to give us rules that we would keep that somehow we would impress God. He didn't come for the people that had it all together. And when we look at this, we see that he came, and he not only came for, but he used people that, that didn't measure up. Because the foundation of our relationship with God through the gospel isn't what we have done. The foundation of our relationship with God is what God has done for us. And so what we see here in Matthew is he underscores the fact that this isn't even just something that's just taught in the New Testament. This was always God's plan. So when you look at this whole genealogy of Jesus, you see that throughout the whole gospel message, throughout the whole Old Testament, God is always choosing the people that are unworthy, the people that didn't keep the law, the people who would have been excluded. And he's saying, no, these are the people that I'm going to save. These are the people that I'm going to use. Because if we think about religion, it's about merit. And if we talk about merit, these women wouldn't measure up. No one would want them to be a part of their family line. And because if we talk about merit, what the gospel teaches is none of us deserve to be a part of God's family. But by grace, look who's at the table. Look who's sharing the table together. You have a, a prostitute, a woman guilty of incest and sexual entrapment, a, a, an illegal alien, an adulteress. And Matthew's saying, this is what Christmas is all about. Jesus Christ came to earth to bring us salvation, not by giving us a good record, not by teaching us how to, to do better things, to build a better resume, but it's about Jesus Christ coming to earth to do what we could never do, to live the life that we could never live, to die the death that we deserve to do, so that based on faith in him, we can have forgiveness in relationship with God. So what it's saying is that when you look at the gospel, it's saying that it's not about rules. It's not about performance. It actually, the gospel teaches you can never be good enough to earn God's favor. And that's all of us. The Bible says that all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I, I, I could never do that. That's part of coming to Christ is recognizing that I could never do that. We all fall short of God's standard. But while it begins with that reality, it then continues. Gospel also teaches that you can be, never be bad enough to keep you from God's grace. So no matter what your past, no matter what you've done, no matter the family you came from, God says, no, I want a relationship with you. And we see this by these stories that we're looking at here. That's the story of Christmas. That's why Matthew begins his gospel in this way. All along, God's story has been a story of grace and mercy. As we look at Rahab and we begin her story, what we're going to see is she dealt with something. She struggled with something we all deal with that still even to this day. And that is that we, we struggle with finding our identity and in, in our failure, in our labels, in our past. If we go back to Matthew chapter 1, let me just go ahead and read there. It, it begins this genealogy and it starts off father to son. 
Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah, and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar. And so suddenly we have that highlight. Okay, now there's a listing of different people and a woman. And, and last week we looked at that story of Judah and of Tamar. And, and again, we saw incredible dysfunction. But we saw God's grace. And then he continues, and Perez was the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Andibadab, and Andibadab the father of Nation, Nation the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab. Now again, we have that highlighting. Suddenly, we have a woman that's thrown in there, and, and we, we may, if you don't know the Bible that well, we may read that, and we, it's strange that there's a woman, but if you were having a Jewish audience that was reading this, who knew the story of Israel, they read this and right away, there's a gasp because they hear Rahab's name and they have by Rahab and in their mind, they immediately fill in a blank because she was known by, by a title. You know, when we think about this, we understand this, that, that sometimes when you think of someone, you almost automatically put this title right after them. So let's say in the Bible, you can help me here and do some fill in the blank. In the Bible, we know one character like that. We think of Christmas, we think of Jesus, we think of John the Baptist. Okay, we know that. Okay, for those who maybe don't know the Bible as much, we know this in history. So we have in the story of history, you have Alexander the, or, or Attila the, okay, we know that. We use the titles. Or in fiction, you know, how about in fiction, Conan the, but very, okay, or Star Wars fans, you're going to like Jabba the, Okay, we know that. Okay, so we use these titles. We, we understand that. It's not uncommon for people to have some title or some label, usually because of something they've done, usually something positive. Now, what was Rahab's label? Every other time she's mentioned in the New Testament, she's always referred to as Rahab the prostitute. She was history's best-known prostitute. Again, that's not something that you are excited about celebrating in your family tree, but that's who we have here. And not only that, but she was a Canaanite. She was not part of the Jewish you know, people. She didn't come from the right bloodline. She was from the people that was known for, for the rejection of God, for their blatant immorality, their idolatry. And yet, for some reason, God weaves her into the Christmas story. Why? Because it's teaching us something about the nature of Jesus and his life and his ministry. Now, even as I read this, I think, you know, there are many of us that may struggle with this to some degree in our own lives. The fact is, is that we feel like we are labeled. We are identified by something in our past. Think about Rahab. I mean, part of her labeling was that she was, she was from Jericho. She was from Canaan. She was from this people that was known for their violence, idolatry, their immorality. In fact, if you know her story, probably a lot of where she ended up as a prostitute may have been a result of the culture that she was raised in. And in the same way, I think it's very common for people today to identify themselves by something they're born into. Uh, you know, maybe we're raised in a dysfunctional family and we identify with that dysfunction. I know, I know many people that were raised and, and part of their background is you, you were abused in one way or another. And that identifies you. You can't think of yourself beyond that. You can't think of yourself as being worthy of love or, or valuable as a person because you see yourself as your name, the abused. Or maybe you were raised in a home where there were other dysfunctions. You know, you had broken families and, and you were questioned whether you're really loved by your parents or, or because you had divorce. So in multiple generations, you look at it and say, well, I, and I can't make marriage work. And when it gets hard, you give up because you identify yourself with that past. Or, or maybe you came from family. We had multiple people that were dealing with addiction. 
you identify that, or, or a family where people, you know, dealt with anger and, and violence, whether physical or verbal, and, and so you look at that and you say, well, that's what our family is, that's just the way we deal with things, and, and you kind of excuse it, you expect it of yourself. Now, the Bible talks about a concept that we sometimes refer to as generational sin. And the fact is that there are times that sin patterns do get passed down. It's what we learn. We get modeled by our parents and we struggle to get over that. The Bible talks in, for example, in Exodus 34, that this, it can be, sin can be passed down from the third and fourth generation. Now that can sound discouraging, but here's the encouraging thing. In that very same passage, it tells us that God can break that generational sin. Exodus 34, same passage. The Lord, the Lord, a God is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. And here's the beautiful thing, is that we can be born into that past. And that could have defined us, but it doesn't have to define us in the future. What we see in the story of Rahab and you see in the teaching of all the Bibles that God has the power to break that generational sin so that we don't have to be defined by abuse or that the failure in our past. Look what Paul says about that in the New Testament. In 2 Corinthians, he says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. We are a new creation. The old label has passed away. The old history has passed away. We don't have to be bound by that. We can be freed through Jesus Christ. And it's not only the, the, the sins that we maybe were brought, born into in our background, but even the things that we do in our own, you know, the things, the labels in a sense we earn. So Rahab, well, she obviously made decisions that led her into prostitution. That was part of her own decision, her own mistake. But what we're gonna see in this story is that while she earned that label, through the grace of God, God was able to say, no, you are now a new creation. You're no longer defined by that. That's not who you were, that's who you, that, that's who you are, that's who you were, but not who you are. So that God is able to change that identity from Rahab the prostitute to Rahab, member of the family of God. Rahab, part of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. So let's look more closely at her story. And, and as we see that story, we see that we're changed by, the, by faith in God, how she was and how we can be as well. Now, their story is again in Joshua chapter two. And, and before we dig into that, let me even kind of take a minute to set it up. It's dealing with the people of Israel. And, um, and at, as we get here, they're a brand new nation. The Hebrew people for the last you know, three, 400 years have been living in Egypt. They've been living in slavery as an oppressed people in Egypt. And through a series of miracles, God delivered them from slavery. And now they're coming into the, the land that God had promised them. It was the land of their forefathers, of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, where they had lived before they were brought into slavery. Land that God had promised them, and now God's bringing them back into that promised land. So they're basically returning home. But it's been several hundred years. And in that time, they've grown radically as a nation. They start, when they left, they were a handful of families, a handful of people. And now they're estimates are between one to three million people. When they left Egypt, Moses was the leader, but he's now passed away and he's handed off that leadership to a guy named Joshua. And, and as they come to this promised land, the first thing that they face is this major city called Jericho. And then this was a huge city. It was a powerful city with these huge walls that many people would have seen as impregnable. Their walls were so thick that you had, you know, literally you had houses built into the city walls. And so as Joshua sees this, he said, okay, well, we need to figure out what we're up against. So he decides to send a couple spies in to kind of scout things out. 
As they arrive into Jericho, we find that they scout out the city and we're told in Joshua 2.1 that they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and they lodged there. Now, here's what likely happened for those that, again, know the, know the culture. They likely chose Rahab's house and went there because knowing she was a prostitute, it would provide cover for them. See, probably what happened is that they were coming in and they were pretending to be traveling merchants. And in that day and culture, traveling merchants would have been some of the most regular customers of the prostitute. Not only for, you know, for whatever prostitutes do, but then you would have a place to stay. And, and, uh, and so that was very common. So they're pretending to be these traveling merchants. They're coming and they're trying to hide there. But while they're there, some people recognize them as Hebrews. And, and so they, they're suddenly aware these aren't, these aren't traveling merchants. These are spies. And so they began to search for the people and, and they go to Rahab's house. Somebody had seen them going there and, and they don't knock down the door. Then you look for them. For some reason, they, they pound on the door and they ask, you know, have you seen them? I, I think I'm not really sure, but my only guess is, you know, they knew that if you had Rahab's house and they know what she does and you don't knock down the door because you don't know who you might find there. You know, you don't want to burst in and find your boss there. So that's kind of like, a, we don't want to be that embarrassing. So they, they pound on the door. They ask her, you know, have you seen these Hebrews? And she said, well, yes, I did. They were here. Um, I didn't know who they were. I didn't know they were Hebrews. And they've left, you know, before it got dark. Uh, they went out before the city gates closed. I, you know, imagine they, they've left the city. And if you get a bunch of guards together and chase them down, I'm sure that you'll be able to catch them. And that's what happens. So they go and they, you know, go chase them with these different guards. And then she goes up to where the, these men are hiding, and we see this conversation starting in Joshua 2, chapter, or 2, 8. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land, and that the fear of you has fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came to the, out of Egypt. Now, so here she comes, and she says, she calls him up, and she she says, I've heard reports about you. And again, probably the most likely thing is that she has all these traveling merchants that would come to her. She's heard stories about, about the Israelites, not only about what has happened, but we're going to see that she heard about their God specifically. And, um, and here's what I want you to notice. When she says, it's not, I've heard about you and how big you are and how powerful and how you're defeating people. Look what she says about what their power is. Look what she calls out, what I've heard. I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the Lord melt away before you. For we heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea. And here specifically, when she uses this word, Lord, she's not using the general word of God. She's not even saying, I heard a God or your God. She's using the, the, the Hebrew name for Yahweh, the specific name of God that was known only to the Hebrew people. So somehow she's heard not only what happened, but she's heard that this, this unique God, not any of their gods, this unique God, he was the one doing the miracles. And she's giving credit to him and saying, I've heard about your God. Your God is a different God. Your God is a powerful. And not only that, but then she continues. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on earth beneath. The Lord your God, again, this is the, the Lord, that name. And it's not only that, he's the real God. He's the only God that matters. Now, 
when you hear this, I think she's not only hearing about the power, but she's also probably hearing something about this God specifically. Some of the things that, that he's teaching, the morality, the values. And she's sitting there saying in this, in this pagan culture, and I'm in this, I'm a chattel, I'm, you know, people don't value me. And, and here's a place where there's a different value system. Here's a God that is, it's, our culture, we have all many gods. This is the God above all. He is the God in heavens. He is the one that is earth beneath. He is the one that is all powerful. And it's not just that she's heard about these Hebrews and thinks that somehow, well, they're going to do it and I want to get on the right side. Now, most of the people in Jericho at that time would have thought, we've got this impregnable city. We're not going to be defeated. We can stand, we can stand against them. And yet she looks at it and says, my faith isn't in my gods. My faith isn't in my city. It isn't in my people. My faith is in your God. And so she turns on her people and in a sense puts herself at great risk by saying, okay, I'm going to protect you. I'm going to help you. And then she said, okay, but I want you because I have faith in your God. When you conquer, because I know you will, because I know your God's behind you, well, then I want you to protect me. And they agree and they, you know, she lets them down she's, because her house is in the wall. They let her down and they go escape. They go back to, to uh, Joshua, the Hebrew people. And the story ends then in chapter six. And there's an incredible story about how God conquers uh, Jericho. You know, we won't get into that. And, and, but finally, after all that is done, we read at the end of chapter six, but Rahab the prostitute and her father's household and all who belong to her, Joshua saved alive. And she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent out to spy out Jericho. And so that she was not only saved, but she, what does it, she lives in Israel to this day. She's part of us. She's part of our people. Her identity has been changed. Why? Because she put her faith in God. It's faith. Faith. And what is faith? Hebrews 11 talks about this, what faith is. And it's going to talk about these heroes of faith, of which Rahab is one. But even before they get to her, they define faith. And what is faith? It says, this is faith. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. What is it, faith? Faith is believing that there is a God who is in control. It starts by believing that there's a God that exists, that, that I am not God. I am created. And, and there is one who has not only created me, but has created truth, that has created the world. There is a God to whom I am accountable, to a God that I am answerable, and there's a God that is above me. I am not the source of my own truth. I am not the source of what's right and wrong. There is a God who exists. And not only is there a God who exists, but it says that he rewards those who seek him. And basically saying, I need to not only believe that there is a God that exists, I need to also believe that God is good. That there is a God and he is good. Meaning that if I follow him, if I seek after him, if I have a relationship with him, that is the best life. He wants a relationship with me, not because he's needing me to, you know, bow my knees and he's just being, you know, a, a, a tyrant, but he's doing it because he's saying, I want you to have the best life. I want you to have a relationship with me. See, why does a person not follow Jesus? Why do we reject a relationship with God? Because we believe that there isn't a God. Either I am the ultimate source of authority. I know better for myself. I, I don't need anybody else over me. I reject that there is a God or that I reject that he is good. Well, he's good, but, but I don't want to do what's right because I know what's better for me. If I, if I do it my own way, I'm going, to, I'm going to have a happier life. I reject that he's good. That's why we reject a relationship with God. 
And how we come to faith in Jesus Christ is that we were saved by this, this faith that recognizes there is a God. I am not him. I rejected him. And, and I acknowledge that there is a God. I acknowledge that he's good. And I ask him to forgive me. I, I want him to be my God. I want him to be my Lord and King. I want to learn what it means to, to live in following him. And that's what Rahab did. Because we saw in, in Hebrews eleven six that definition of faith. But then it lists the people who are heroes of that faith, whose lives were defined by that. And so we go to Hebrews eleven thirty one. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she given, had given a friendly welcome to the spies. By faith, faith in God. See, the fact is the gospel is that God wants a relationship with us. There is a God that exists and, and he's good and he wants a relationship. And, and that relationship is the means by which we're created for that relationship. And if we have that relationship, we find the, the blessed life that we're created for. But that relationship isn't something that we do based on what we do. It's based on faith and what Christ has done for us. Religion tells us here's how we work our way towards God. But deep down, we know, all of us know, that we fall short. All of us know that, that there are things that we don't measure up to our own standard, let alone God's standard. But, but the message of the gospel is that we could never work our way towards God. But God has intervened. We couldn't work our way up, but the message is that God came down. That's what the birth of Jesus is all about. God came down and took on human flesh, and he died on the cross so that it, our sins could be forgiven by faith in what he has done. It's not about our working our way up to God, but God coming to us. Some of us struggle with this. And some of it because we're religious and we're like, but I can do it. I don't want to admit that I can't. And we're arrogant in a sense of, if I keep got to try, I don't, I don't want to humble myself in that way. And the gospel is humbling because it admits that I'm a sinner, that I need God's grace. And only in admitting God's grace does God forgive me. And then I discover, I discover you know, this gift of God that is freely given. But others struggle with us because of our sins in our past, our labels. And we look at it and say, well, okay, if Jesus died, but you don't understand, I did this. I did this as my family. I've made these mistakes. I, I can't believe in God's forgiveness. I can't believe that he would love me. And what we're doing is we're saying, my past failure is more real than God's, than God's, than God's grace. And putting our faith in Christ, for some of us, it's going to be to say, God, I bring my labels, I bring my failure. I'm, you know, I'm like, I'm really, like Larry Hebb, you know, I'm somebody that, is, that has a label that has failed in so many ways. I don't come from the right family. But I ask you to accept me not based on what I have done, based on my resume or my genealogy, but I come and I ask you to forgive me based on faith in what you have done. And what happens when we do that? He literally changes us. He transforms our identity so that our identity is no longer what we were. It's not that I'm like this and this is my failure and this is my... No, I'm suddenly transformed. I'm given a new identity. I love how Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 6. And he says, Do not be deceived. The sexual immoral, the, uh, the idolaters, the adulterers, or men who practice homosexuality, or the three thieves, or greedy, or drunkards, or revilers, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. And then he continues and says, and such some of you were. Now he's speaking to the church and saying, that's what you were. It's not what you are. That's the label that you had, but you're no longer that. But now you were that, but now you've been washed and you've been sanctified. You've made part of the, of the body of Christ. You've been made a child of God. Because by the faith in Jesus Christ, what he does is he changes that label. So think about Rahab. Who was she? She was known as Rahab the prostitute. 
She was known as the Canaanite. She was the, the outsider. And yet she comes to God and God changes her identity. So she is no longer Rahab the prostitute. She is now child of God, member of God's family. You know, again, uh, you know, great, great grandmother of Jesus Christ. She is a hero of the faith. You look at Hebrews 11, she is lifted up as one of the great heroes of the faith. And that's amazing. And what we need to realize is that can be each one of our story. Mm -hmm. That God wants to change us and say, you're not, that's who you were, that's not who you are. You're not defined by those past failures, by those past labels, by the brokenness that you were born into. No, in Jesus Christ, he changes our story. He changes our identity. If you heard and you've never asked Christ to be as your, as your Lord and Savior, you know, to forgive you for your sins, you've never said, okay, God, I ask you to give me what I cannot do. There's a day of saying, okay, I humble myself to acknowledge that I fall short, but there's also a place in humility of saying, I can never be good enough to earn God's favor, but I can't be bad enough to keep me from God's grace. God, your grace is greater than my sin and I ask you to forgive me. I bring my mess. Forgive me, make me your child and he will. Now, there may be some here today that you've done that in the past. And, and for you, here's what I want to encourage you. If you're letting your past define you, you haven't fully embraced all that the gospel means. That you are not what you've done in the past. You are not your past failure. You are not your past history. You have a new identity in Jesus Christ. Ask him to help you believe that and live up to it. So that you could say, yes, this is who my past, but my story isn't about my failure. My story is about God's grace. And God's grace is always greater than my past label, than my past failure. Praise God. May you believe that. May you live into it. And that is it for this week's message. If you have a question about the message, Community Church, or Jesus Christ, send us a text to 330-400-3242. You can learn more about our events and community groups online at ccpl.life connect. There, you can also send in a prayer request. We would love to pray for you. Have a blessed Lord's Day, and we'll see you next week.